Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor, a digital resource for the multidisciplinary cancer team. My name is Dr. Rahul Banerjee. I'm one of the editorial members. This month, in honor of Multiple Myeloma Awareness Month in March, I'll be speaking with faculty experts across the country about things that we think are very important for patients with multiple myeloma that don't really get discussed quite as much. Today, it's my privilege to be interviewing Dr. Urvi Shah, who is an assistant attending in the myeloma service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, who is an expert on all things in myeloma, but most particularly an emerging expert in diet, nutrition, microbiome, and those kinds of things that really we get zero exposure to in medical school. Dr. Shah Urvi, if I may, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you, Dr. Banerjee. Excited to speak to you about these topics. Absolutely. So I'll start with that fact that, right, I think uh, officially the number of days I spent in medical school learning about diet and nutrition is officially zero. So with that in mind, what should doctors and patients know about diet and nutrition in the setting? Let's start with active myeloma. So not so much prevention, but patients who have myeloma. What's important, you think, for physicians to know? And then what's important for patients to know? Uh, that's a very, very important question, and it's a relatively understudied area. We have a lot more data in the prevention setting and survivorship setting around cancer, but during treatment, there is little less data just because th those require randomized studies or better trials to be done. That being said, um, you know, I think it's important to, um, you know, to meet a patient where they are in terms of what they want at that time. So I think often oncologists tend to dismiss these questions or feel that a patient, you know, needs to focus on the other things. But I think looking at the whole picture is important. So if a patient is very motivated to make changes during their treatment, then, you know, it would be important to discuss them with them. For the most part, however, um, I also would caution patients that when they are on active treatment, the treatment is, of course, priority to get used to it in terms of the chemotherapy side effects and the treatment response. So trying to make all the changes at once can sometimes be challenging or difficult. And I would not rush to that because dietary changes can be gradual and over time. And um, the other thing is, you know, so it's important to start learning about it, thinking where the changes can be made, but they don't all need to be made immediately like, you know, when we start the treatment as well. Um, the last thing I'd say around this topic is that, you know, patients have different nutritional needs, and we also need to understand that, especially around treatment, uh, depending on the treatment, depending on how much weight loss they've had from the diagnosis, or maybe they've had no weight loss and they are have a high BMR. And then also, what is their dietary pattern to begin with and how different it would be from something we recommend. Um, a simple way to look at it is looking at the American Institute of Cancer Research guidelines, and those are mainly around cancer prevention and survivorship, but they do talk about plant-forward diets and why that is important. Within the myeloma space, we have done a study in uh, with Dr. Lesokin and myself at Memorial Sloan Kettering, where we looked at stool microbiome, uh, the but stool metabolites, things like uh, butrate levels, dietary factors, and we correlated this with looking at sustained MRD negativity, meaning the duration, like a long-term complete remission in patients on lenalidomide maintenance. So this is after their induction chemotherapy and after maybe transplant, but when they're in the survivorship space. And then we look to see if there were any changes that were associated with 
um, uh, response and a sustained MRD negativity. What was interesting is we saw that patients who had more microbiome diversity means more variety in the types of bugs and amount of bugs, as well as um, increase in stool um, molecules such as butrate were associated with higher sustained MRD negativity or complete remission. And these butyrate molecules are anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer molecules that have anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory effects. So we think that that may be what's playing a role into this association. Then we looked at dietary factors because we know from other studies, not in myeloma, that patients on plant-based diets actually have higher butyrate levels than patients on animal-based diets. And so we saw that patients on who have higher plant and seafood protein intake actually had higher butyrate levels. We also calculated the plant chemicals that patients ingested in terms of the phytochemicals is what this is called or flavonoids. These are healthy molecules seen in plant foods. And what we saw is that patients who consume more of those foods actually again have a higher butyrate level suggesting that the plant-based sources of protein are likely to be associated with the butyrate. Of course, this is a small study and this is exploratory. So I would caution in terms of like, you know, what we see, but this gives us um, food for thought in terms of what we can do going forward or what to think about. And um, so with that, I say like quality of protein um, is more important than quantity. I think in the US we are protein obsessed, but I think we need to be quality of protein or quality of uh, food obsessed. And we also need to think about fiber. So nobody thinks about fiber, but fiber is, I think, a bigger friend than protein. And um, it, it, fiber only comes from plant foods. And I think, you know, in the U.S., less than 5% of individuals meet their fiber requirements. And actually, when they survey patients, 60, if, if you survey the general U.S. population, 67% of the U.S. population thinks they meet their fiber requirements, but in reality, only 5% do. But when we talk about protein, it's almost the opposite, where most people think like they need more protein, but almost everybody meets their protein requirement as long as you're not calorie deficient or you know malnourished where you're not eating, you will get your protein. So I think you know, understanding that is important. This is very helpful, and I appreciate those specifics as well as the the quick food for thought joke. I don't know if it was a joke or not, pun intended, that you had in there earlier. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, great, and I just want to encourage to the audience that how you know this is not just bench to bedside. This is you know almost like a molecule to mouth. You know, taking surveying <laughs> patients and then also looking at their microbiome, actual or levels of proteins in their their stool. I think is just a very wide scoping, uh, translational and clinical projects. So thank you for, for leading that. Can you talk about maybe then segueing from kind of past to future? I know that you have a couple of trials open right now, looking at some of these topics prospectively in the New York area. Can you speak to kind of what you're working on now? Sure. Um, so we have, um, you know, four new prevention trials either open or going to open in 2022, and I can discuss briefly about them. But maybe I'll just give you, you know, a short background of why we're doing these trials. Sure. So. Um, in myeloma, we know, um, again, we, in cancer, we know that diet plays a role in terms of large epidemiologic or population studies saying that patients who eat a healthier diets, meaning more plant-forward or plant-based diets, meaning more plant foods, tend to have less cancer. And this has been seen in three cohorts, the large-scale studies of more than 50,000 participants, one in the UK, one in the US, and one in France. 
In one of those studies, the Epic Oxford cohort, um, it was a study of over 60,000 participants from the UK. And in that cohort of participants, 65 of them developed multiple myeloma. They divided the patients in that cohort into uh, meat eaters, seafood eaters, and vegans, vegetarians combined, given it was a small population. And what they showed is that there was a 77% relative risk reduction in development of myeloma amongst the vegans, vegetarians compared to the meat eaters. So they had less myeloma overall. Um, so that's one large population study. And then the second large one that we have in myeloma is the nurses health and health professional study, which looked at, this is from the US and looked at over 160,000 participants. And in that they found 423 cases of myeloma and they looked at the pre-diagnosis diet and they linked it to myeloma um, risk of death. And what they showed is that patients who ate more of like Mediterranean or prudent diets or DASH diets, and all of these again are plant-based diets and healthier dietary patterns, were associated with 15 to 24% lower myeloma death on diagnosis. And the Western inflammatory diets were associated with a 15 to 24% increased risk of death. So we're seeing similar patterns between across multiple studies. Across. Um, then we also know myeloma is one of the 13 cancers associated with obesity. And we know that um, BMI plays a significant role. There are hundreds of studies that have looked at uh, BMI and myeloma, and we published a review around that. And so that study showed that obese patients are one, uh, in many studies, one of the studies showed that obese patients are 1.8 times more likely to develop MCAS. And another study showed that they're twice as likely to progress from MGUS to myeloma. And then similarly, we've seen like there are studies showing increased risk of myeloma development uh, with uh, increased BMI as well. We also know that diabetes is associated with uh, cancer and myeloma. We just don't know whether it's causative or it's just a correlation in terms of like same risk factors are causing both of them. But we know that there's an association there. Um, so just all of this, knowing that there is this whole metabolic risk factors, um, and we know that nutrition plays a role. We also know that there are preclinical studies and smaller studies around microbiome showing that bad bugs are associated with progression and things like that. We felt that it would be important to study it in a prospective setting, meaning in an interventional study setting. Mm -hmm. We also surveyed patients around this topic and said, like, do you want to studies like this or whether this is something that you would be interested in? And then overwhelmingly, 82% of participants over 400 that we surveyed said they would be interested in knowing more around diet and nutrition. And they had questions oh. around it and they'd like to make changes. So that's part of the background of why we do it. And then I can go through the studies. I would, I actually will, I'll ask one question that I would love to hear that and you may be about to answer it. Uh, so in these studies, it's unclear, in most of the studies, it's unclear whether it's just higher rates of plasma cell dysgrasias in general, including MGUS, or is it that once you have MGUS, the inflammation leads to a high risk of progression to myeloma. You did mention one where you said that, for example, obesity was independently linked with both higher rates of MGUS and plasma cell dyscrasias, but also a higher risk of progression for the MGUS patients. Correct. Uh, that was for obesity. We don't have data around nutrition for that, uh, sure. but uh, you know, it, 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 I would assume it's like maybe the risk is similarly what it is for myeloma. It could be for MGUS, but we don't really know. So then flipping to prevention, so for patients with MGUS or smoldering, I think some of your intervention styles or studies are in that space. So I would love to hear more about them. 
Thank you. Yes. Uh, so the nuclear prevention pilot study that we started actually um, a year last year in June is a 20 patient study. It's open at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Um, it's currently enrolling. So if a patient's interested, they could reach out to us. Mm -hmm. um, we are taking patients who have either MGUS or smoldering myeloma with an M spike more than 0.2 um, and um, or abnormal light chain ratio and um, having a BMI over 25. And uh, patients are given three months of a whole food plant-based diet. Uh, we actually ship them meals and uh, we provide nutrition counseling as well. Wow. Uh, and we, okay. for 12 weeks, we provide the nutrition counseling and then we follow them for a year on the study. And we look at changes in weight, changes in inflammation, microbiome, metabolic factors, things like that. So um, the study is enrolling pretty quickly. I'm hoping by the end of this year, we'll be able to share some data around it. Thank you. And that's very, that's very impressive because I agree with you that I think uh, most patients want at least some counseling about what to do in terms of diet and nutrition. But I think this is actually a more robust study looking at if you actually give them the plant-based diet, a whole plant-based diet, you know, what are the outcomes that you see? Yeah. Um, Great. I'll pivot gear slightly. So this is very helpful. And so I think the takeaways for at least for me and for the audience is that, you know, plant-based diet, and I might ask you at the end just for what specifically you counsel patients about on plant-based diet is certainly helpful, or at least the study suggests it might be helpful. And two, that you don't need to do it all in one day. Because I agree with you. I think a lot of our patients, we tell them, do this, do that, get your echo done, start the aspirin and everything in the course of a week, everything changes. And this is more of a gradual and durable change you're hoping them to do and not something to rush into. For the study, we're partnering with a company, Plan Pupil, who provides the meals and then also some of the health coaching with, for the patients. And we know they're high fiber, uh, you know, uh, plant-based healthy foods with low uh, oil and processed mm -hmm. ingredients. Um, the second study we have is uh, the Nutrivention 2 study that I think will open later this year. This is in partnership with the Health Tree Foundation. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do on this study is that we'll only enroll patients with smoldering myeloma across the United States. So patients can be in any state as long as they live in the U.S., um, and this will be a very short telehealth study where they will ship us stool samples and we will be sending them either supplements or diet to their homes. And all of it will be through a telehealth um, a virtual uh, interactions. And so it's only like a two to three week intervention, but it, it will give us an idea because microbiome changes happen quickly. And this is what we'd like to see with different supplements and diet, what the changes are in the microbiome. This will be a hundred patient study. And multi-state, which is one, and I like the decentralized idea of working with patients, not making them come into the, the clinic to do all of this. They provide two samples from home. Yes. Wonderful. And trying to simplify it as much as possible. And if this works, you know, we could do more studies quicker because of that too. Then. I, I totally agree. Um, I'll pivot slightly. So for patients who actively have myeloma, so the ones that we see most typically in our particular respective clinics, I think. A lot of them ask about diet nutrition changes, both for the myeloma itself a little bit, but a lot more they say, look, you told me bortezomib causes neuropathy. You told me little lidomide causes fatigue. You told me Dex makes me angry and irritated and doesn't sleep well. Are there specific things that you recommend to patients in terms of diet, nutrition, or holistically anything in terms of the treatment toxicities they can expect with therapy? So the things that I talk about is like, you know, one of the vitamins that I always check and follow up on is vitamin D levels. Um, I, I do, I do like to see them 
close to 30 or a little bit over 30 if possible. Mm -hmm. um, there are studies in myeloma showing decreased overall survival with lower vitamin D levels. Of course, these are association studies and you know um, it's not an interventional showing that if you increase the level, it's, it's going to make a difference. But with the data we currently have, you know, that's the best we could do. Um, so, and sometimes there is association with, you know, taking vitamin D and improvement in fatigue or generalized feeling of wellness. And so I think, you know, it's something that has a low um, risk and possible benefits. So especially, you know, that's one thing I do. The other thing is looking at anemia, if there are any causes that are easily fixable. So all of these are medical things first, of course, thyroid levels, things like that. But then I also talk about like overall lifestyle changes. And it really depends on if a patient's interested because many are, but many aren't as well. And it just depends on where they are in their stage of treatment and if they're interested. So things like overall diet quality, I think, you know, um, can improve uh, energy energy levels and feeling um, better overall with yourself. So trying to move towards, again, eating similarly a healthier diet, more fiber-rich foods, things like that. So I talk to patients about that. And then, uh, of course, exercise, weight management, other lifestyle changes, because all of those things can be associated with inflammation, fatigue, things like that. And then um, I think those would be the main things. And if it's something like bordesomib-induced neuropathy, then I think it's dependent on um, the, the, it's mainly due to the side effect of the chemotherapy, but if they have modifiable factors like diabetes or Absolutely. any vitamin deficiencies, then I think those could also be um, addressed with, look, check, I always check B12, B1, B6, uh, vitamin D and the A1C, you know, when they have neuropathy, just to make sure there's no modifiable factor that we could quickly fix. That's a good point because these patients are in it for the long haul in terms of, you know, they'll live with myeloma for years, hopefully. And so identifying those modifiable things is important. Um, this is very helpful. Thank you, Dr. Shah. Uh, though maybe the last question I'll ask about is another future-oriented question. So the microbiome, so poop samples. Uh, you know, I could imagine a future where, you know, you titrate someone's intake of, of plants to kind of titrate a certain amount of butyrate in their stool, or perhaps you tailor what supplements or what you give, or even what therapies you use based on what you know their microbiome or what their stool samples show in terms of composition. What do you see? Where do you see the future of the, the stool movement going, so to speak, in terms of what it might hold for the future of myeloma? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that going forward, personalization, with especially with immune therapies being around. Um, sure, you know, I think point. there's um, significant, like the microbiome. Actually, we are more microbiome than human cells. If we think about the number of cells, you know, we're more microbiome cells. And so the, the genetic code of our body is something that, you know, we can't really change. It's kind of what we are, we are born with, but the microbiome is something that's easily modifiable and it has a significant immune modulation potential and properties. So I think we're just scratching the surface in terms of looking at it, not just in myeloma, but in general with cancer and overall health. I think there is significant opportunity in that to, to make an impact. Um, the question I think just now is more is uh, how do we um, tailor it to individual needs and understand what each person needs or what is going on in the microbiome and especially with certain diseases and things like that. So few things that we know as of now is that, you know, diet is one of the biggest um, 
factors that modulate the microbiome. So we can obviously work with that. And then we know that um, it, there may be some supplements or things that could be uh, affecting it. So that's why in our Nutrivention 2 and 3 study, we're looking at supplements that can modify the microbiome to maybe improve uh, these uh, better bacteria, better stool metabolites. And if we see a signal around that, then we know that maybe this could have a long-term beneficial effect. So I think trying to modify the microbiome, ideally, I think diet is the most data we have just now. But if a patient doesn't want to change their diet, can we do it with supplements and trying to you know figure that out for the future is part of what you know our trials are looking at i i think that's tremendously important you know i think uh for a lot of our patients who are hospitalized myeloma i joke to them that their number two is my number one priority you know in terms <laughs> of just having regular bowel movements because it's tough that is correct. therapies that's we're on but this is another level of that where it's not just the bowel movements that matter so that looking at the stool microbiome exactly as you said i think the microbiome modulates both the underlying myeloma and our therapies for myeloma much more than we realize. There's a good example from the melanoma world um, mm -hmm. where checkpoint inhibitors, um, you know, we don't use that in myeloma much, but the, the longest PFS was seen or progression-free survival, meaning um, it was seen in patients who were taking su sufficient dietary fiber and no probiotics. And this was published in science. So actually, huh. you know, probiotics didn't help. It may have had a negative effect in that study, but, you know, the fiber was what was important for patients to be taking, uh, like not, not as a supplement, but dietary fiber. This is fascinating. I did not know that. And it's a good example of why we need future research in this area. And I'm glad that you are at the helm of this ship kind of driving the field forward. Um, any parting remarks or anything else you'd like to say before we close? Um, I, I just like you mentioned two other studies that are going to open in case mm -hmm. patients are interested. So the Nutrivention 3 study is similar to our Nutrivention pilot. It's a more involved one-year study for patients, but we have three arms in that study. There's going to be a diet arm, a supplement arm, and a placebo arm. But the supplement and placebo arms also will get the diet eventually. So everybody gets the diet, but there will be some who also get the supplement. And we're going to be able to see the effect of just um, supplement alone, supplement with diet and diet alone and see you know, what the changes are on the microbiome and myeloma progression in MGUS and smoldering patients. And then the Nutrivention 4 study is, is in patients in, on my, um, uh, in the survivorship space. So this is the one study which is patients uh, post-induction or chemotherapy who are on maintenance therapy. But we have a study open, so they need to be part of that study to go on this study. And that study is looking at lenalidomide versus daratumumab as a quality of life study. And sure. that's a hundred patient study and as maintenance therapy. And amongst that, we will have around 30 patients, 15 in each arm, go on to get a diet and then evaluate the effects combining with, you know, the immune system, immune therapies and um, the microbiome. Which will be fascinating. I, I can, um, I, I'm sure that Len and daratumumab that affect the microbiome in different ways, just based on their yes. properties on NK cells and other cells. So this will be interesting. Exactly. Looking forward to seeing these. Dr. Shah, thank you so much again for your time. This has been really illuminating for all of us. And as you said, <laughs> food for thought. Um, <laughs> again, thanks for the audience for listening. Again, my name is Dr. Banerjee, and this has been Oncology Data Advisor. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatments, all found at oncdata.com.